This is The Human and the Machine, brought to you by Editorial Intelligence. Welcome back to The Human and Machine, the podcast series which gives you the lowdown on the digital era, not from the perspective of an Alexa or a Siri or a friendly machine, but from the perspective of people, and specifically the impact technology has on our lives. This episode is all about digital media, and I went to New York to discuss the latest trends with two of the big players. Our view is that what we can do is use technology and use the platforms and use the engagement techniques to get people hooked on healthier behaviors. That's Danny Shea, Chief Brand Officer at Thrive Global, the new portal from Ariana Huffington's team, creating a new integrated media model of content and digital learning around wellness. When you're in a world when anybody can upload multimedia content from anywhere and simultaneously have it consumed by anybody, it really does have to start to redefine what we think about publishing. And that's the legendary media and journalism commentator and educator, Emily Bell of Columbia's School of Journalism, the Tau Centre for Digital Journalism and the Scott Trust, publishers of one of our most successful mainstream media brands to go digital, The Guardian. We're adjusting our format a bit here at The Human and Machine and leaving the magazine format to, well, magazines. Instead, we're going longer and deeper. I hope you like the changes. First up is Danny Shea. Behind every digital media giant is an executive leading the brand. In decades of digital, which have seen such tremendous changes from the way we consume media to what we consume, from the citizen and consumer voice becoming central to content itself, one thing hasn't changed. The brand remains supreme. If you aren't hot, well, you're not. You need the engagement, the page views, and as I heard from Danny, something of a new holy grail, not passive consumption, but active behaviour change. I'm in Soho, downtown Manhattan. I'm in the offices of Thrive Global with the chief brand officer, Danny Shea. Danny, for the uninitiated, what is Thrive Global? Thrive Global is a behavior change media and technology company started by Ariana Huffington about two years ago to help end the stress and burnout epidemic. So we, we tackle that through three main avenues, the first being digital media, where we're looking to change the culture by sharing stories of new role models and evangelizing the latest science around the idea that well-being fuels performance and greater performance. The second piece of our company is we work with large organizations on their employee well-being. So we run trainings, assessments, kind of digital and live interventions where we're really kind of working to change the culture and to give employees access to content and micro steps very small changes to improve their well-being. And the third piece of the company, which is really exciting for us, is software. So we're building a digital behavior change product suite, an app of our own, but really also a platform that connects into other apps to help people really action the advice and interventions that we recommend. I should declare an interest. I'm editor-at-large of Thrive Global, so I, I hope that I'm very across and alive to and supportive of the issues behind Thrive. 
But in some senses, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because you are helping people to get a better handle on how they live in a digital era. But digital causes a lot of the problems, and many of the pieces that we publish on the site address the deficit of digital. So how do you get that balance right as a brand? Yeah, so we, we embrace the paradox that we are a technology company and a media company encouraging people to have a healthy relationship with technology. The truth is the tactics for engagement and I think 2018 was a year where we really as a society took back control of our relationship with technology. I think 2017 was the year that people really started to understand, like the pendulum shifted in 2017. 2018, it became more of an individual responsibility conversation. But what we all kind of at this point know that technology companies are using engagement hooks and tactics, trying to get us more and more addicted. There's absolutely no point in pretending that they don't exist. Our view is that what we can do is use technology and use the platforms and use the engagement techniques to get people hooked on healthier behaviors. So that's really one of the most salient points about Thrive and our role in really the employer space is that we bring our digital media expertise. I spent 11 years at the Huffington Post the same time Ariana did. And a lot of our team comes from the media background and, and of course from the tech ecosystem. And so we bring all of the engagement techniques traditionally associated with consumer media and technology into a space that by and large has been relatively dry when it comes to the employer and the HR tone of voice but also to inspire healthier actions. You know, we believe that it's all about how those tactics are being used and what means they're promoting. How much of the behavioral science and the behavioral economics around behavior change mm -hmm. is in the background of your models? So I would say that the behavioral science and the change theory is actually in the front of our model because it's all about the micro step. So in order to make behavior change sustainable in the long term, it's very similar to nudge theory. You know, you need to make it small and you need to make it actionable and you need to demystify it. So we could go in and we could tell people, whether it's a company or an individual, you need to become this sleeping saint and this meditating guru overnight and, and really fix every one of your problems. And they might be able to do it for a few days, but they'll fall off, you know? And so if we tell them, just try 30 minutes here, just try doing 20 minutes in the morning before you look at your phone. I'm not saying get rid of your phone. I'm just saying spend a little bit of time. And in fact, rather than 20 minutes, how about one minute? And then get used to that one minute and then build upon it. And so it's really, that's based on the science of behavior change and, and just how habits and new habits are formed sustainably. It's also, isn't it, very compatible with the microscopic attention span that we find ourselves in in the digital era. So a lot of your design is based on a media business. You worked at Huffington Post, but you're, you're moving into new territory, aren't you, which is getting engagement from traditionally non-media literate audiences who nevertheless want really fast results. So I would say that the biggest shift that we're pushing in the media space is moving from awareness to action. So if the last era of the internet and media was all about the information revolution and expanding and exploding access to information, let's look at meditation as a case study. Over the last five years, 
everyone listening to this podcast has probably read dozens or seen dozens of headlines about meditation. That doesn't mean they're meditating, and meditating is just one example. It's by no means the only thing that's good, but it's a good example because there was an explosion of awareness in the last few years around the science and the benefits and how to do it, but people aren't meditating. Now, some are, more are, but it, not the same amount that are reading about it. And so I use that example to say that knowing about it is not enough. Our goal as a company is to take people from knowing what to do to actually doing it. And our mechanism for taking them there is the micro step. We break down these big concepts like meditation or emotional well-being or sleep and movement and nutrition into very small actionable changes. Just try it today. And you know, you know what, if you don't like the word meditating, just call it silence, call it contemplation. Our goal is to meet people where they are and whatever journey they're on and help them get started today. Danny, whatever else you're doing at Thrive, you're producing, aren't you, a lot of daily content. Give me some numbers and context for how much content is, is goes out on the site. I know in my own little aspect of it, I commission quite regularly and write quite regularly for it. But what's the overall picture of the content that the average consumer can look at on Thrive? So we think about Thrive as not a website so much as a cross-platform media ecosystem. And so if you go to our Instagram and our LinkedIn and our Twitter and our Facebook and our podcast and our website, you might see the same things and you might see entirely different things. And we have this vast contributor community of almost 40,000 contributors that are producing content on a daily basis. So the difference between what we're doing and what most other media companies in previous roles I've played is, you know, scale isn't necessarily our end-all be-all here in the way it is for most media companies. And what that means then is you, if I'm understanding you correctly, is you're not going for, for the eyeballs strategy of just like as much clicks and views as possible. You know, of course, I think we're, we definitely have a really healthy audience. We have 30 million followers across the platforms and we care about scale and eyeballs, but we're not monetizing based on that. I think our business model here comes from really those three avenues. We do corporate partnerships around employee well-being. We do brand partnerships around media content and kind of brand association, and we sell the software into companies. The second piece is not dependent on having this kind of massive content machine. What we're selling is something different. We're selling added value to consumers' lives. We're selling a belief that by working together, we can figure out how to position brands with our micro steps and our content in a way that will then give their consumers information and action to improve their lives through the product. So is it a sort of integrated role that digital media is now playing, that it used to be the case, and certainly in your decade plus with the Huffington Post, which was such a game-changing digital media, that it really was all about actually emulating what old media did but better faster online are you saying i think you are saying i just want to hear it mm -hmm. from you that digital media is really very different now in 2019 from what it has been for the last 10 years digital media is definitely different today than it was for the last 10 years i think the last 10 years was about chasing and pushing the likes and the comments and the shares and the platforms and the hits and the traffic and the page views and the video views. And I think the game is fundamentally different and we are not playing that game. We know how to play that game. And of course we have a vast audience and that's important to us, but 
we're really interested more in adding value and connecting our mission and our, even when we work with brands, I mean, the, the reason why that game is that game is because that's how you monetize. And so when we work with brands, we're not selling them exclusively scale and impressions. Realistically, the brands are gonna buy the impressions for themselves if they want it. What they can't buy is an association with the brand that we have and the mission that we have and the idea of helping their consumers connect to information that inspires healthier day-to-day -day actions in their everyday life. And so it's really that brands like Thrive that stand for something that allow different partners or there's a huge uptick in subscription platforms these days, right? So subscription is a model that looks to be working. We're also doing a lot in the B2B space. So one thing that we do is in all of our corporate programs, we're selling them access to content. We're selling them custom content. We're selling them licensed content from our platforms. What brands and companies need is alignment with a mission and content to inspire action. But your USP is really interesting to me because in between all the layers of the technology and the digital and the clever B2B and the corporate branding and la la la, is the human, is the person. And that's actually what your mission is about, right? It's reconnecting, to coin a phrase, the human and the machine, right? No, absolutely. And I think that even when we work in the corporate space, one of our USPs and our big selling points is the idea that we know how to talk to employees and we know how to talk to people. And that idea that humans, employees, people, same thing, and there's not this work persona that they put on when they open their email inbox, that's the difference with working with Thrive in, in the corporate space. Most HR professionals or even most enterprise companies in general talk to employees like employees. We believe that there's no distinction between the employee persona and the outside of work persona. It's just a human. That's why we, we reject the idea of work-life balance. It's just work-life integration. The same human comes to both. And if you fuel that individual human, you can see greater performance across both home and work. And the technology then is just aiding and abetting where useful and being used with caution where not, but it's almost as if the technology is a side issue to the mission, or am I overstating that? No, the technology is an enabler. The technology helps, you know, we do these amazing in-person live trainings. If we could scale those and put them around the world and give live training in everyone's pocket, we would, we can't. That's what technology enables us to do. But I think that, you know, as we are building V1 and V2 and V3 of our behavior change products, we have this conversation. Idiot question, does that mean version one, version Sorry, two, version Sorry, version one, version two, version three. As we're building and iterating on these products, we have a, a lively debate around the role of work content in those apps. And what we've decided on is that in the enterprise space, if we were to just give work content, we would not be fulfilling our mission. Our mission is to serve the whole human inside and outside of work and to use technology to scale that. But we're not just gonna give employers and employees content about how to succeed at work. The idea of Thrive is what happens outside of work, whether it's a relationship with a family member or some creative passion that fuels your soul, is about fueling you to perform at work and it's equally relevant in the workplace as it is, as is a content about dealing with a tough manager. Danny Shea, thank you very much. Thank you. What's clear about Thrive is that the term multimedia has been reinvented. 
just as Amazon was a game changer in the way we bought books and then literally anything else, and all those fangs, Facebook and Apple and Google, have all been disruptors and changing the essence of what we consume. I think Thrive is doing that too around the way we digitally consume ideas and activities around health and well-being. It's innovative and it's energising from a digital business perspective. And that's why, as I said before, I'm actually involved as an editor at large at Thrive myself. This is the human machine. But what happens when the new isn't regarded as innovative in a good way? What happens where old-fashioned media is concerned? So much has changed in the last decade, especially for so-called old media. It's been nothing short of traumatic. And I went to perhaps the only living Englishwoman in New York who could give me a comprehensive answer to what's been happening and what's going to happen next. Okay, so if anyone knows about digital media here in New York, it is Emily Bell. The fact that she's not a New Yorker doesn't count against her. Emily Bell is the Professor of Professional Practice at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism and director of the Tao Centre for Digital Journalism. So if Emily doesn't know about digital journalism, nobody does. Emily, what do you think is going on with digital journalism with lots of websites falling left, right and centre and the whole landscape changing? Give us the lowdown, please. No pressure, Julia. None (laughs) whatsoever. That's a very... We set a very high bar at the human and the machine. That's a very generous introduction, and I'm absolutely sure that I don't know everything about digital journalism, but it's a really interesting question that you've asked because several years ago when we had the rise of what we might call the social mobile web, which is when we stopped looking principally at websites on our laptops or our desktops, and we started to look at them on our smartphones and we started to download apps, and particularly social media apps, Uh, we completely changed really how we thought about connecting with each other, how our consumption habits changed, and all the things that we sort of talked about for the preceding decade, so I'd say sort of, you know, between about 1995, 2005, was really sort of upended. And this idea of when you're in a world when anybody can upload multimedia content from anywhere and simultaneously have it consumed by anybody. It really does have to start to redefine what we think about publishing. Who is a publisher? Who is a journalist? Who is the audience? You know, do any of these distinctions really matter anymore? So when you say sort of what's happening right now, I think when all of these changes started to happen in about 2007, I think we thought we knew what was happening, which was the rise of social media and platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Google's YouTube would perhaps sort of disrupt the market by bringing forth new voices and different ways of doing things, which they have, and that's been excellent. It's added a diversity to what we do. But what nobody predicted at the time was that the business they were really in was this massive data aggregation operation, particularly through, if you imagine sort of smartphone technology just knows so much more about us. It knows where we are. It knows who we're with. It knows what we're buying. It knows how long we're spending, what we're touching, you know, so much about us that that enabled uh, these large uh, companies and particularly Google and Facebook 
to completely reconfigure the advertising market. And also in the case of places like Twitter and Facebook, which are platforms, it enabled them to decide what they were going to show us when. So, sorry, this is a long way of not answering your question. Well, but, it, but it's fascinating yeah. and it also pertains to your Ballywick, which is news and the yes. story of news yeah. in particular. So it'd be great to hear a little bit about that. Yes, so I think that we thought this big disruption in news gathering. So if you think about news as two parts, one of which is news gathering, in other words, how do we find the stories? Where do we find the stories? And then production and distribution, which is how do we report the stories? How do they reach people? Social media, and particularly the social mobile web, has disrupted all of that. So in terms of news gathering, if you can imagine, most stories now, particularly in breaking news, we see first on Twitter or we see it maybe on Snapchat or Instagram, because the world posts first to uh, mediated platforms rather than going to its local newspaper or it's uh, the correspondent that it knows and trusts. And it, and it posts fast and instantly. Posts so that fast whole fact-checking, I mean, yeah. surely the rise of fake news and the massive yeah. drop in trust levels is right. directly in proportion to this ubiquity of the social mobile I, web. I think, I think it's actually sort of, you're right, it is. But I think there's a more fundamental underlying factor there, which relates to my brief history of what's been happening to the sort of the platform technology and this idea of being targeted according to data, which is that the really big players in this who have all the money now from advertising uh, and Facebook and Google are called the duopoly because they really dominate digital advertising. They have like 60% of all digital advertising. It's a higher percentage than that, than that on mobile phones. It means there's very little left for anybody who is not mm. either of those companies. And what it means is that they have created an environment where actually the business of reporting is financially unsustainable because it is so much cheaper to produce things that people will pay attention to and donate their data to, to make those from something which is not reporting, which is an entertaining quiz or which is a fake news story. Or which So the incentive structures that we've grown up with in the last five years not only don't enable you to produce journalism, which is sustainable, they actively really sort of act against it. Because what it means is that if, if you and I set up a persuasion campaign house and we just produced things that needed no reporting but that were just opinion and often sort of made up things we would most likely get much greater reach for it than something that was deeply reported and actually real. So but that's partly the psychology of mediums and this whole movement around deep fake, which is people are now consuming information that they sort of know to be false, but it's almost like yeah. they don't care. Well, I what's think, going I th on there? Well, we've always had that to some extent. So I would say our friends in the tabloid press, you know, we all knew that Freddie Starr did not eat somebody's hamster. Right. Uh, but when it was on the front page of The Sun, it was quite entertaining. So there's always this been... This is a reference to a very legendary <laughs> British tabloid story for our listeners who are yeah. not in the UK. But yes, I'm and sure also, every country has also its version. Also under, under the age of 40, you won't <laughs> remember it. So everyone has a version of the entertaining press. And actually, you know, in, in Indian newspapers, they had uh, sections that were actually flagged up as fake news, but they are too entertaining not to put in the newspaper, even though they're false. So there's a rich tradition of the press creating stories which are not true or which are 
so exaggerated that they actually lose their truthfulness. And all the internet does is allow us to do this on a much greater scale. Yeah. But what's always been the sort of case before is that the publishing houses have had a mission to do good journalism. Not all of them, and not everybody agrees on what good journalism is, but most of the big publishers retain reporters, which is what journalism is all about. It's all about reporting stories. So your big beef, it seems, is partly that the internet publishers are platforms and don't act with anything like the commitment or responsibility or ethos or investment to older journalism models. Exactly. And it's not even that they don't act like that to older journalism models. They don't even act like that to new journalism models. So if you look at the rise of something like BuzzFeed, which was a viral marketing content agency, really, was what it was, which then the founder, Jonah Peretti, wanted to expand into more credible news. So he hired an excellent editor called Ben Smith in 2011. And they really produced a fantastic newsroom uh, in the US, which has broken all sorts of stories in a pretty traditional, you know, shoe leather reporting way. But because BuzzFeed had uh, very much set itself up as the poster child for a media company that really understood social, was very close to all the platform companies, tons of data science going into the company that meant that they understood what was happening on platforms. And yet they have found that they cannot really make news pay or pay back investors in the way that they would like it to or in the way that Facebook can, you know, that the growth that social media companies have delivered to investors has made it incredibly hard if you're a content and advertising company, whether it's a legacy news organisation that wants to transform into digital, or whether it's something like BuzzFeed, which is trying to do this model again, it just doesn't scale in the same way that being Facebook does, because Facebook doesn't put in the expensive guardrails to make sure that everything is legal, above board, high quality. It just allows its platform to be used by anybody who can create viral content. But hasn't history in information terms been littered with accidental winners and losers? I mean, I'm talking about, you know, the CD or we're talking about, you know, television Mm. didn't exactly replace radio. Radio has remained, but television has become the story. So where do you think this is going to net out? If you could future cast, even for the next five years, Emily, what what would you say digital media is going to look like? Well, I think it's, you know, you're, you're asking this question at such an interesting time because I think we thought it would just look like new institutions that grew up on the internet. So uh, just as cable grew large companies like Comcast and Viacom, and just like the broadcast networks grew large companies like CBS, or even sort of public media like the BBC, I think we just thought, well, the internet would just grow its own types of news organisation that will just replace the old ones. And we'll go through a period when the old ones are weak, and the new ones are weak, but eventually the new ones will become strong. But we're, at the moment now, we're actually the news one, new ones are weak, and we don't quite know about the old ones. So something like the New York Times or, you know, the, my old home, The Guardian, look pretty strong now compared to some of the digitally native 
shops because people carry on buying papers you carry on having a culture and you carry on being able to adapt what you do into digital so we're we're now at a point where we say well if all the money carries on going to large scale technology companies we have two options really i I don't think the first one is an option we have to regulate them so that's the first thing we have to do we have to regulate them and then the second thing is like how do we then litigate an environment which enables high quality reporting at all levels, at local level, at national level, at international level. Can we just talk a little bit about digital communities in media? That seems to me an interesting development, particularly with The Guardian, even with The New York Times, that they have these highly segmented different iterations right. for their customers. What, what, what's that set telling us? Well, so so this, it's really interesting you should say community because it, it is one of those things that digital organisations talk about all the time. So, you know, Facebook famously has an advertisement in about 2014, which starts off with a picture of a chair saying, you know, it's just a chair, but when you put it in a ring and you sit around and you talk to each other, it's a community. And they introduce the idea of Facebook and the idea of a platform as a community resource. Um, because of course you can connect people on peer-to-peer sharing platforms news organizations were stuck with this problem which is mostly the old model of news was this sort of tablets on the mountain you can hand down from on high as an authoritative one-way route into you know people's consciousness and their homes and actually what digital enables you to do is not just to have a conversation with the news provider but it actually enables you to have conversations with each other around the news provision. And the communication scholar James Carey has this theory, if you like, of communication, which says, you know, there are two things. There's transmission, which is a one-way, or it's, it's if I want to tell you something, Julia, I will tell it to you, and that's transmission. But if we want to have a conversation about it, that's sort of ritual. So you can't just think about, you have to think about ritual and transmission as both parts of what news and journalism performs in the community. And the great liberation, I think, for news organisations is that you could actually have suddenly discussions, rich discussions and exchanges, either on your own platform or on somebody else's, whether it's a Facebook group, whether it's a Twitter thread or whatever it is, around the subjects of the day. And the people who are the Guardian readers or the New York Times readers or the Financial Times readers can connect with each other. They can recognise each other in ways other than just on the sort of the letters page. It sounds awful, doesn't it? <laughs> All those people discussing. And, and, and that, that's a double-edged sword of social media. Some people say, well, we don't want that. We actually just want expertise. We want something which is shiny and sort of packaged and perfect and we're sick of people discussing the news endlessly but i don't i think that that's a luxury position to take i don't think that's how most of the world that doesn't have the freedom to do that feels i think they feel deeply envious and and would be enriched you know their their democracies or would come alive or their um communities would be enriched by the ability to do that so that concludes our program today Next episode, we're back in London, still in our deep dive mode of interviews around a single topic. I'm rejoined in the studio by Charles Arthur, who you will remember from series one of The Human and Machine. Charles, thank you for coming back to the programme. And what are we talking about in the next episode? Hi, Julia. It's great to be back. And we will be talking about autopilots. And we will have Dr. Jack Stilgo from UCL and Alex Hearn from The Guardian. 
Thanks, Charles. So that's it until the next episode. You've been listening to The Human and Machine with me, Julia Hobsbawm, and this has been an Editorial Intelligence production edited by George McDonough.